Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, welcome back from vacation. Where did you go? I went to Vieques. It's a small island right outside of Puerto Rico. I went to go see Bioluminescent Bay. Yeah. Yeah, with a microplankton that glows. Unfortunately... And they don't, they're not quite sure what's going on there. It, they were not surfacing, so they don't know if it's a changing climate or if they were disturbed somehow. But um, it's kind of a bummer, but I hope that they get that back because it's an amazing thing. I think it's only one of two places in the world that has that level of bioluminescence. Oh, cool. I mean, you got to see other stuff, obviously. Yeah, lots of wild horses, um, all sorts of really cool things. Well, welcome back. Thank you. Uh, welcome back to the podcast, and welcome back listeners to outer space we've been talking about wanting to hit some more space content because i mean that's part of the the dna of the show and we haven't been there recently so here we go into space into some big cosmic questions yeah because we've talked about this before this idea of the goldilocks principle and how earth is just the perfect place right it's not too hot it's not too cold um, but what else is going out there in the universe and we're going to try to get at this idea of you know the universe is not this dead you know void of space it's actually a living universe yeah, you you always end up coming back around to that uh, that whole scenario, right? You, you look out into into space as, as much as we can, as an individual, understand space. You mm-hmm. see all that darkness, and uh, and as the saying goes, there's the idea that there's life out there, and there's the idea that there's nothing out there, and mm-hmm. both of those ideas are completely mind blowing. To think that there is life, thinking or just curdling and and, and, you know, reproducing itself somewhere, or there's just nothing. It's just a dead universe. And both of those have a tremendous effect on you if you stop to really chew them over. Yeah, especially if you add the time element to it. Because yes. on one hand, you could look at, you know, some people look at space and the universe, and they think of it in futuristic terms. One day we will conquer it. One day we will know more about it. Other people look at it as a relic, as if you're peering into deep space, you are peering into deep time and you can reverse engineer time and try to figure out something about how we came into being. Exactly. Now we of course have a, uh, humans have an evolving, continually evolving uh, understanding of the cosmos. Uh, you go back not even too long ago in our very brief period of time in, uh, as a species in this cosmos. And it is just a very, like the briefest little tip of the needle. Yeah. Um, and uh, and you have our understanding based on basically ancient Babylonian cosmology, you know. And you have just just very rough ideas about what we are and where we are. Your our, our cosmos was limited by what we could see with the naked eye. Yeah. And we inevitably, being self-centered as we are, put ourselves at the center. Uh, so there was the idea that the Earth was the center of the observable universe, which again was not even that large. Yeah, um, and a lot of this boils down to the Copernican principle, right? Yes. We're talking about the mid-1500s when astronomer Nicholas Copernicus said, hey, the Earth is not the center of our solar system, which really was disturbing to many people because that was putting out the question of, well, what if we're not the center of it and God is not the center of it, then who is the center of it? 
Right. Who's driving this ship? And he introduced the idea of the sun. He was a heliocentric, uh, the idea that the sun is the center of things and we are just revolving around it. Now, again, based on his limited understanding and, and observation, that made perfect sense. And that was a huge step in the right direction because the Earth is revolving around the sun. Yeah, and uh, we've been building on that idea ever since and really sort of expanding out from that and trying to figure out, okay, so if, you know, the Earth is not the center of it and, you know, we're revolving around the sun, let's move beyond that. Let's move beyond our galaxy. Um, and so we're still trying to to move toward that. But you had said something I thought was really interesting. You said that our, our really our history and our idea of this in terms of deep time is just occupying a space on the tip of a pen, right? Right. And I wanted to mention, if you guys haven't already seen this, um, in Cosmos. Oh, yes. I know exactly where you're going. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which is hosted by Neil deGrasse Tyson. He gives a, a wonderful explanation of this idea of, of really how much time we humans are occupying in deep time. And he takes the entire three 13.8 billion age of the universe, and it condenses it down into one year. This is not going to give justice to it, this explanation. So that's why I urge everybody to, to check out. I think it's in the first episode. It is. It's the, I think towards the, the, the later part of the first episode. Yeah, this graphic of this calendar, this one year, the first second of January 1st is the Big Bang, and the last second of December 31st is the present day. And he walks you through this. And according to this calendar, all life on Earth only appears within the final week of that year, and humans appear only in the last hour of the last day, and all of our recorded history from the founding of every religion to the fighting of every war takes place in the last 14 seconds of December 31st. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, to, just to think that even if life on Earth exists only one million more years, say in a million years something catastrophic happens, then life on Earth was still just this tiny little blip in, in this in this grand time timescape. Now, for some people, that might make you feel sort of divorced from um, from life. But for others, you can look at this deep time and realize that this fabric of um, of matter that's helped to create us has always been well, not, have, not has always been there, but has been there for a really, really, really long time before and after us. And we all are intertwined by that. So again, you mentioned that uh, that calendar year. Uh, our entire cosmic history as a calendar year, that calendar year is representing roughly, based on our current estimates, 13.8 billion years of history. That's 13.8 billion years from the beginning of the universe as we understand it to the present day. Yeah. And how do we know this? How can we calculate this? Well, first of all, the universe cannot be younger than the objects contained within it. So you start to look at the objects. For instance, you look at stars and you begin to measure their mass and their brightness and figure out the lifespan of that star. So you have more massive stars burning faster than their lower mass siblings. And by the way, the more massive, the more brilliant they are and the easier they are to spot. So a star 10 times as massive as the sun will burn through its fuel supply in 20 million years, while a star with half the sun's mass will last more than 20 billion years. And that gives us a clue, especially when you look at something like globular clusters, which have these similar uh, characteristics. And you know that the, the oldest one of these globular clusters have stars with ages between 11 and 18 billion years. 
All right, so that's that's one set of evidence. It's kind of like trying to figure out what time some guys uh, robbed a bank. You ask yeah. one uh, one witness, and they go, oh, I think they went in around 5 p.m., and you ask another, and they say, oh, I think they went around 5.10, and then you sort of compare the notes. Well, one uh, one witness here is saying, oh, I think it was it has to be around 11 and 18 billion years based on the, the age of these uh, globular cluster clusters. Yeah, that, that is one clue that kind of gets us in striking distance. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about why people have uh, you know the general consensus of 13.8 billion years in a second. But we have to kind of go even further back into the past before we can do that. And we got to talk about this fog at the beginning of time. And in order to do that, you got to talk about the Big Bang. Yes. Now, Big Bang, of course, is, uh, is, is the big theory about uh, how the universe came to be and, and what the, the, basically what the universe is, really, in mm-hmm. a very... Uh, you know, straightforward uh, manner. Uh, the, the main uh, opposition to this uh, was historically the steady state theory, and yeah. that's the idea that the universe has always existed, and therefore it's always existed at the same density. And that'll make more sense in a minute. But we're talking about the Big Bang here. So there is no before the Big Bang. That's important to note. There is no outside the Big Bang. The Big Bang, to, to go back to the beginning of, uh, of, of history, to go back to the beginning of that, uh, that calendar year that we talked about, yeah. you come to a moment when all matter is a singularity. And since all matter is a singularity, all time is a singularity. The single point. Yes. A single point of time, a single point of, of matter. It's, uh, it's, it's almost, almost impossible to comprehend. It's such a, a, a foreign, and even though it's very small, it's such an immense idea. That time and space, everything is down to this the smallest point possible, and it's just kind of ah, like my brain almost breaks trying because I want to place my understanding of it in a in a system of time because I exist in right. time and it's the only way I can understand things. And this is something that that is wrapped in time and 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 it's part of its compression. And it was outside of time at one point, right? And when you're talking about that pinpoint, you're talking about just tiny pinpoint of energy. Um, this description is from Nola Taylor-Red, writing for Space.com, and she says, when the universe was just 10 minus 34th of a second or so old, that that is, by the way, a hundredth of a billionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second in age, it experienced a huge burst of expansion known as inflation, in which space itself expanded faster than the speed of light. And during this period, the universe doubled in size at least 90 times, going from, okay, that, that pinpoint, that subatomic size pinpoint to a golf ball size uh, ball of energy almost instantaneously. And she says that after inflation, the growth of the universe continued, but at a slower rate. And then as space expanded, the universe cooled and matter formed. And one second after the Big Bang, the universe was filled with neutrons, protons, electrons, and anti-electrons, photons, and neutrinos. And this is really, this is where it gets very interesting. She talks about how during the first three minutes of the universe, light elements were born during a process known as Big Bang nucleosynthesis. And for 380,000 years or so, the universe was essentially too hot for this light to shine. So you have that heat of creation smashing atoms together with enough force to break them up into this dense plasma soup of protons and neutrons and electrons. And that's scattered like fog. That's the fog of the beginning of time. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's no other real response to that. So here we are 
roughly 378,000 years after the Big Bang. Like you say, everything's been this, this hot mess mm-hmm. for ages. That's a good way to yeah. say it, yeah. And, uh, and there's, and there's not much that can really happen there. It's just everything's kind of, uh, I mean, I, I, I hate to use the word chaos, but it's kind of a chaotic state. Mm-hmm. But then, uh, the universe, uh, cools to about 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit or, uh, 2,700 degrees Kelvin. And this is a crucial because this is cool enough for electrons and protons to recombine into hydrogen atoms. And this also releases photons, making up the radiation that we come to know as the cosmic microwave background. Yeah, that recombination era sets loose those first flashes of light that were created during the Big Bang. So now they are detectable in the form of cosmic wave background radiation. Why is this important? Well... It's important for so many reasons, but one is that it helps to support the Big Bang Theory, the fact that this is detectable. Right, the second witness. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing is that it allows us to, again, get a bigger um, take on what was happening in the universe. It gives us a chance to reverse engineer the timeline. And it's been measured with NASA's Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe and the European Space Agency's Planck spacecraft. And so they've looked at this radiation left over from the Big Bang, and they can look at the density, the composition, and the expansion rate of the universe as a result. And in 2012, WMAP, they said, hmm, we think that, you know, looking at the different data here, that the universe is probably about 13.772 billion years old. Then you have the Planck um, spacecraft that says, yeah, we're looking at 13.82 billion years. And that's where you come into this idea of, all right, the consensus is 13.8 billion years old, the universe is. And again, it's uh, on one hand, we were looking at the age of the items in the universe, and here we're looking at the rate of expansion and how big it is and, and what the cosmic uh, uh, microwave background is telling us. Yeah, and so, okay, this is all important. Why? Because it gives us a little bit more data to work with, and we'll talk about this in a second. Because you start to look at the universe in a different way. It wasn't just this, you know, static thing that's always been existing. There were dynamic changes. And as a result, it kind of um, upends this idea of the Goldilocks theory. This idea that you have to have the absolute perfect conditions for life to occur. Because if you look again at our solar system, you look at Earth, that's the bed that Goldilocks is going to bed down in, right? Because right. you've got... Uh, sustainable water sources that are pretty, you know, solid in terms of staying regular. Um, particularly when you look at the distance that the sun is from the earth, right? But if you look at something like Mercury, which is closest, super hot. Right. That's not going to work. But if you look at Neptune, super cold, or just if you're feeling nostalgic, if you look at Pluto, super cold. Um, that's what we normally have thought about. We've thought, okay, Earth is really special because life has happened here against what seems like all odds. But when we get back from this break, we're going to talk about this idea that life could be uh, more plentiful than we think and, and perhaps even before Earth was even formed. All right, we're back, and uh, you know it's it's important to to, to stress again that that uh, we used to live in a, in a time where we had this geocentric fallacy, where we thought that the Earth was the center of things. But when you get into this Goldilocks scenario, you you get close to falling into another type of geocentric fallacy, yeah. Because you, you're again stressing the idea that Earth is special, 
that life on Earth is special, and by virtue of that, humans are special as the uh, as the primary uh, evolved intelligent species. And therefore, I am special. Right. Right. And we are all special to a degree. But uh, if you look into deep space, if you look into deep time, then you start to look at this thing called the habitable epoch. And uh, what we're talking about is for millions of years after the Big Bang, the universe was in a kind of interim state between lumpy gas and the cool galaxy-studded darkness that we see today when we look up at the night sky. Uh, there were no galaxies at the time, only large stars probably embedded in dark matter. So along comes someone named Abraham Loeb, and he is an astrophysicist at Harvard University. And he says, hey, we can do simulations of these early years and what people find is that there were tens to hundreds of times more massive stars than the sun. And these giant stars floating alone could have had rocky worlds like Earth in orbit around them. And this is where the idea of a habitable epoch occurred after the Big Bang, but before life on Earth. So what does Loeb do? He, he puts together a couple calculations here. Yeah, and the, 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 the craziest one here is that... Uh Okay, today, the temperature of that relic radiation we were talking about, that, uh, that, that CMB, that cosmic microwave background, is just about 2.7 Kelvin. Kelvin. But at an age about uh, 15 million years ago that we're talking about here, uh, it would have kept the entire universe at 300 degrees Kelvin. So we're talking about heating emerging from that, that cosmic microwave background. Yeah, and again, this is just a blip in the eye of time. It's, you know, 15 million years after the Big Bang, but any existing planets at that time would have been in that habitable, habitable zone, as you say. Uh, Goldilocks here would have had numerous beds to get into mm-hmm. because the universe was still bathed in that warm gas from the cosmic microwave background, but it had cooled down. So you would have liquid on these planets or, you know, no matter where they were in relation to a star. Yes. Which is huge. Yeah, because liquid water is the, one of the building blocks of life. Exactly. And it's one of the things we look for when we look out and, and think, is this, an, is this exoplanet capable of theoretically supporting life? Yep. There would be energy to kickstart life forms. You have your liquid water, which would slosh around the surface of planets with atmosphere. Now, as Loeb points out, this would be a very weird time for life to evolve anywhere because many of the building blocks uh, of life on Earth, like uh, carbon and metals, uh, they only exist because we have these massive stellar explosions. We have the supernovas that right. say, so, you know, we are all star stuff. And there was less star stuff to go around because this is early in the universe. There haven't been as many uh, stars to die. And... Uh, and and this would have been an age where most of the elements on the periodic table didn't even exist yet. So you had fewer building blocks to, uh, f- to build things with. It's kind of like if if you're really into Legos, mm-hmm. and then you find the building blocks, be they Legos or some other brand that like your father or an older sibling had, and you think, how did they build anything? They didn't have those little wheelie doos or the little rotating things, and they only <laughs> had the the colored blocks. So it seems like you would be, you would be very limited in what you could construct. Uh, and, and yes, that's one of the crazy things about this is trying to imagine well, what would, what, what would life on one of these worlds have been like? Uh, you know, would it, uh, what kind of form would it have taken? Yeah, it's kind of funny because Loeb says, if you think about it right now, you look up into the night sky and you see all these galaxies and you see all those stars shining. Um, and that's, that's sort of, you know, our people <laughs> out yeah. there. But this would have been an isolated, a lonely kind of life with, as you say, just a couple of Lego parts. Um, would it have borne out intelligent life? 
Probably not. Um, Alexander Villenken is a cosmologist at Tufts University in Medford, Massachusetts, and he says that a few million years in this habitable epoch is too short of time to produce intelligent life. Because if you think about humans and how long it took for us and all the building blocks before us to create um, the sort of complex intelligence that we have as 4.5 billion years of history on Earth, and uh, that's about 3.5 billion years of those in which life has been wriggling around our planet. Uh, but Loeb says, hey, when I'm talking about life taking shape here, I'm not talking about intelligent life. I'm talking about simple life forms like algae. Yeah. Now, another thing to keep in mind, too, one other thing that works in the advantage of this uh, this theoretical early life would be that that same uh, the same isolation that they uh, that they had would also protect them from cosmic radiation and asteroid bombardments and yeah. other things that could conceivably snuff out life before it even you know got going to any degree that mattered. That's true. Um, even though it would have been isolated and lonely, you're right. Some of those mm-hmm. elements that might have impacted them greatly them or whatever life, whatever form that might have taken on some of those early planets, uh, wouldn't have been completely wiped out by an asteroid. Now, some of you may be wondering at this point, okay, well, what, you know, that's, that's interesting to think that there was this, this early epoch in which, in which very primitive life could have evolved and then, and then perished. But how does that affect the current scenario? It's like saying, oh, well, you know, once long ago this happened, but, but how does that affect the, the present? Well, ultimately, uh, what Loeb's really pushing about this idea is that it makes us have to rethink what life could be like out there now. Mm-hmm. And it changes the equation to a certain degree, uh, about life in the universe as a whole, not just in, in ancient times in an early epoch, but even in our current epoch. That's right. That recasts the idea of the universe as a living universe, not a dead universe. Um, it doesn't make Earth feel so lonely in the sense that perhaps it's the only planet that has ever um, experienced some sort of life form on it. Also, it brings into question this idea of if we know this, just this fraction of information about the universe's history, what else is out there to support the idea that um, somewhere and, you know, billions and billions and billions of, of light years away that we can't even measure, is there another planet that could sustain life currently? Is it in, in the near future? Has it been in the past? Yeah, it's and we're gonna we're gonna resist the temptation to go, go too far into the deep end on this one. But but it, but you really have to then think about all the various forms life can take without even getting into the the idea of intelligent life, because then you have to you have to stop and think. Well, what is what is what is it that we call intelligent life? Is it this? Uh, is it self consciousness? And if so, how many different types of consci- consciousness exist uh, for for some sort of organic being? How many different versions of time perception exist for an organic being? I mean, we we spend a lot of time on this show uh, dismantling human per- uh, perception, mm-hmm. uh, and and you and as you dismantle it, and you you can imagine just like a car, if you take all the pieces apart. Uh, and if you tried to put them back together in varying ways, like think of all the different ways you could reassemble some version of intelligent life on another world. And those are just the ones we can possibly conceive of. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a couple of ways to go at this if we really wanted to fall down the rabbit hole. And mm-hmm. one is just from a chemo- chemical perspective, we could say, well, you know, we're carbon biased. Right. We think that only life forms can can um, start with carbon. But could there be another configuration that we're not aware of? Probably not, but that's one argument. Another is that uh, some people will say, um, you know, there's this anthropic principle, this idea that 
life here exists on Earth only because we, it's observable to us. Therefore, life does not exist outside of the Earth because it cannot be observed or, you know, there maybe are not life forms that can observe uh, themselves or themselves, rather. Right. But uh, that one's really sticky territory to get into as well because, again, you're, you're talking about ideas of consciousness and what is consciousness. And then to what degree is any kind of intelligent life going to destroy itself? To what extent is any form of intelligent life going to eradicate other forms of life in its vicinity? And then we sort of fall back into that whole uh, uh, Goldilocks affair where we're, again, basing our understanding on what intelligent life can be based on the only model we have. And we have to depend on the only model we have. But uh, but then we can't help but, uh, but have our uh, expectations colored by that. No. But you know what makes me feel all sorts of warm and cuddly? Cosmic microwave background? That, too. Okay. I, I like to think of it just cooking me uh, passively. Kidding. Uh, but the Voyager 1. Oh, yes. Because it's out there. That probe that was launched in uh, 77, 1977, along with Voyager 2, we know last year that it left our solar system, and it's in interstellar space. Still giving us data, but, you know, it's kind of getting weak right now. Yeah. It is the, the human Sharpie. Uh, on the bathroom of the universe that is in which we have written humans was here. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, because it has the gold album on it, right? Exactly. Which contains uh, a bunch of uh, different sort of audio ephemera of life on Earth. So you have like a baby crying, the sound of a kiss. You also have images on there uh, just in case someone intercepts it about a billion years from now. All right. Well, on that uh, note, let's call the robot over here for just one quick listener mail. All right. This one comes to us from Brandon. Brandon writes in and says, Hi, Robert and Julie. My name is Brandon, and I'm a huge Stuff to Blow Your Mind fan. Keep up the great work. I just listened to your brain hacking podcast on habits. Something you said in the podcast struck me, and so I decided to write this email. You mentioned something about taking a vacation as being a good way to break bad habits. This was very true for me. I'm terrible with biting my nails, and I'm constantly trying to stop. At the end of last year, I traveled to Europe with my sister for two weeks. When I got home, I realized I had not bitten a single nail once. I was completely stunned. I had not even thought about the entire about it the entire time I was overseas. Simply being in a new environment and doing new things was enough to help break my old habit without much effort on my part. The day after I got home, though, I immediately noticed it was once again a struggle to not bite my nails, and I had to really try hard to stop myself from doing it subconsciously. Just some interesting uh, uh, tidbits I experienced, and I thought I would share. Love from South Africa, Brandon. All right. Yeah, I noticed that, too, when I was on vacation, that I wasn't checking my phone every two seconds. Because, you know, you've got that just compulsion. And uh, I finally kind of broke free of that. And the funny thing about this, my husband's always making fun of my Virgin mobile phone uh-huh. because he has a shiny iPhone. Uh, but it worked brilliantly in Via Keys. And I think that's because Sir Richard Branson has Necker Island nearby. Ah. And I got to think that the network there is pretty strong. What's it called? Necro Island? Necker. Oh, okay. That's I know you were getting all like, Necro <laughs> what? Like the day of <laughs> the dark side Island? of uh, Branson there. But. No, no. Necker. I think about it as necking because it's Branson. For some reason, I think of him as always necking. He, he's always happy looking. So He looks, yeah. you know, just tanned and like he's living the good life. Yeah. With a robust uh, wireless network in the islands. All right, well, there you go. Um, hey, you want to check in with us? You want to share your thoughts about uh, the Habitable Epic? How does that change your 
understanding of the cosmos, your thoughts on the cosmos, uh, in, in regards to reality or even science fiction. What do you think uh, extraterrestrial life might consist of? Uh, all these questions are valid, and we'd love to hear from you. Uh, there are a number of ways to get in touch with us. Uh, the best is just simply to go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the, the way to get a a strong dosage of stuff to blow your mind. That way, there's no there are no algorithms getting in the way of what you see. There, you know, you're not having to depend on likes and shares. That's just all of our stuff all the time. Our our podcast episodes, our videos, our blogs, as well as uh, links out to various uh, social media accounts that we have, such as our Facebook, our Twitter, our Tumblr, our Google Plus. Our YouTube account, which is Mind Stuff Show. And yes, if you want to get in touch with us the old fashioned way, tell them how they can do it. I will in a second. First, you guys got to check out Robert's show, his monster show, which is on our YouTube channel, Mind Stuff Show. It's awesome. So give it a look see. In the meantime, you can send us an email at blowthemind at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 